And you're asking waiting for an additional 40 minutes. I had to eat breakfast. Honey, choke it down. I did. Uh, what, what the fuck were you like, doing at breakfast? I'm know. skipping too many breakfasts. But then today should have been the day you continued. Oh, to- shut up. <laughs> no one wants to hear this. Hi, welcome to Outrageous, our bi-weekly podcast where we talk about race, media, culture, politics, and everything in between. My name is Chris, I'm here in New York City, and I'm joined by my very, very best friend, Trisha in LA. Hi! Hi, hon, how are you? I am very good. I'm existing on $5 of sleep, and I'm still cheering. Okay. I want to just, I want to just let people listening know... Yes, we saw Black Panther. And yes, we are going to go in uh, at the end. Guess what our media recommendation is? <laughs> <laughs> there could be anything else, but... I know. I mean, although someone pointed out to me earlier that we've been recommending the movie for months, so... <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I know. <laughs> I know, but yep, you're going to get recommended again. Spoiler alert. How are you? What's up? Um... I have announcements. Oh, well, you know, probably. I have a job. I have a, well, let's, let, me, let me back into it and say I have, <laughs> I have two jobs now as opposed Ooh, to- that's twice as worse. I have four. I used to have four. So I'm now down to two jobs and I absolutely adore both of them. One of them- Do you I want to talk about what you're doing? Um, Do you want, to let land, you want to let random strangers on the internet know what you're doing? No, not yet. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but suffice it to say, suffice to say that it is entirely within um, my area of expertise. Oh, but I will say something about this. Let me give you a recommendation. I'm going to recommend this to folks. I was asked to submit my resume for this job. Um, it's a dream job. And I submitted my resume and the person's like, you know, I just don't feel like your resume captures all that you're capable of, how comfortable would you feel with writing a bio? Now, I'm used to bios that are like, you know, half a page, mm-hmm. quarter page long. So I sat my ass down and wrote a bio, but I was like, let me just write everything out and then I'll see. I wrote it out. It was like a page and a half bio. But that was one of the most helpful processes I've engaged in in a long time. Are you giving me homework? Is that what you're doing right now? I'm just suggesting it as a, I'm just suggesting it more like as a tool. Like you may not actually give anyone with it, but I told you when I decided to sort of just, I went back and I said, okay, let me back into sort of my most serious job and then just take this sort of chronological sweep. It was amazing to see the linkages and connections between each job as I went along. So now having read my bio, I feel as if I've been planning my life all along and I didn't even know it. Like to look, to go back and look on it, it just seemed as if I was, um, there was more structure in my life than I felt at the time. I, but what was happening was I was constantly being led and driven by my own interests. And so, yeah, it ends up being quite a nice linear story. I have to say, I love that. I love that you're, you're, you weren't as much planning your life as you were living it. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I think I mentioned this last time, but I'm going through this whole radical gratefulness exercise where mm-hmm. I realized just how much privilege there is to have your life move in a direction. 
Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. and you've been really privileged in that way to have your life, to be able to make choices mm-hmm. to put your life in this direction, um, which is great. So please be radically grateful about that. But I think it's fantastic. I, you know, I balked at the homework because you know how I do, but I think that really is a, that's a great exercise to do. Just kind of like write the story of your life. You know, usually people are like, write your obituary and then yeah, make decisions based I on that. that. I mean, it's like the same thing, just a little less dark. well because interestingly enough i mean i've done both so i think what one reveals is um one reveals sort of your wish for your life that's Mm -hmm. just the obituary and then the other reveals what you're actually doing in your life Mm -hmm. the choices you're making but when you actually reread your bio to date it's a real clear portrait of the things that matter to you even if you say they don't matter Mm-hmm. or the things that you have done that um, where maybe you fail to take yourself seriously. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe, maybe when you look at it, you're like, wait a minute, I say I'm interested in this thing, but there's no sign of it in anything I'm doing. Yeah. <laughs> I find the, I find the obituary exercise is really about, it's kind of outside in, right? Because what, what you're asked to author is how will other people remember you as mm-hmm. opposed to how do I think about, the choices I've made up until this point in time. You know what I mean? It's, it's it's like a slight distinction, but I think it's an important one. And but it also it depends on what motivates you as a person. Yeah. Like if, if you're if you're running around feeling judged by people all the time, because I hear that there are people like that out there, then the obituary is going to work great for you because it's all about what other people think about you. That's true. Yeah. Anyway, if you're, I, 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 if you're more of a Trisha, then I think the bio <laughs> Anyway, I would just suggest it for anyone who's considered maybe a job change or who's just kind of thinking about where they want to go next. It's just also, I think it's also a really helpful exercise um, where, you know, when they suggest that you write a letter to your friends and your colleagues and people mm-hmm. who are in the know to suggest jobs to you, I think the bio can be really helpful there because then I think as they read through elements of it, they can say, oh, you know, I think this would be something she'd find interesting. You know, what's interesting to me is that a lot of people that I talk to lately are in this point in their life where they're like, oh, I'm trying to figure stuff out. I'm trying to move in a new direction. I'm trying to figure out if this is all for me. And I'm trying to remember, is do I is everyone in that state all the time? Or is it something about this moment in time where people are revisiting what they want to do with their life? I don't know. What do you think? I have a feeling that people are always there. I think, um, I think too, right? Yeah. I can't imagine that people... Well, listen, let me say, let me back up there um i imagine many people go through their lives not wondering whether this is right honey i'm not gonna make that assumption but um millions of billions (laughs) of people are just toiling and they're just like toil what are you gonna do um so yeah i mean i think so i think it's always happening i think sometimes it's in stark relief to maybe like a contemporary to a present moment you know Maybe the country feels like it's a more in an upheaval, so people are more drawn to those kinds of reflections. Um, but no, I, I think it's always happening. It's just how intense it is, maybe. Maybe, maybe. Feel? I, I mean, I know I certainly feel it, but I, I, a lot of people I talk to, or maybe it's just, maybe it's just the people that I talk to. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> I just realized that there's, there's a common factor in all the people that I talk to. And I'm a questing person, so it makes sense that I would also know other questing people. Although, to be fair, um, I will say that my um, a major 
part of conversations that I have with people because I generally am interested in this is what gets them, what makes them feel alive. Yes. I always ask people that. Yeah. I always like, oh, when people start talking about their jobs, you know, okay, here's a secret (laughs) about me. Everybody listening, I don't give a shit about what you do for a living. I just don't. I never care. Like, if you notice, if I know you personally, I have never asked you. And if you ask me, if you know me for a long time and you ask me what you do for a living, you're going to be shocked because I honestly don't know. <laughs> oh my God, you're like a Caribbean parent. <laughs> if, you're not, if, if, you're not a, if you're not working as a doctor or a lawyer. I know. <laughs> I'm just going to say, if you don't have one of those jobs. No, yeah, you don't have a Caribbean parent unless you, if you don't want to be a doctor or a lawyer, forget it. You're not talking to those people. But honey, but what interests me is like what, gets like you going like i love when i talk to someone and they're like oh whatever i'm an accountant or whatever boring shit they do and but they're like you know but i rock climb on the weekends you know (laughs) and then you see like their eyes light up and you're like oh like hello this is this is why you're alive so tell me more about that who gives a fuck about your accounting no one cares no one cares what you do for a living listen up america no one cares that is so inaccurate it's in so true. Oh, don't you dare. <laughs> in America, it is all about what you do for a living, which is funny because nobody cares. <laughs> nobody cares. I mean, and I, again, I am so grateful that I've had enough privilege in my life that I can be like, oh, you know, work doesn't matter. Blah, blah, blah. I mean, yes, I understand all of that. But at the same time, I feel like a lot of people do not have the opportunity to do the thing that they love, right? And you have to work to make money. And yeah. I've made my peace with that, right? You work to make money, but that should be it. Like it doesn't have to back end into you fooling yourself that you necessarily enjoy it, or this is why you are here, or this is what you're for. Like it's just what you do. And then you do the other stuff that actually gives your life purpose. Oh my God. That is so antithetical to Oprah. What does Oprah say? Uh, A purpose driven life, (laughs) which is usually intricate, weirdly connected to your job or do what your love and the money will follow all those authors. Well, those are two different things. Those are two different things. One is like, I work at Wawa and I love working at Wawa because I work at Wawa. And the other one is I'm very interested in Wawa administration (laughs) because I love it. Therefore, I'm going to get a job at Wawa. Like those are two different things. No, you know what? No, I'm, I actually seriously, seriously have to um, revisit this issue because obviously I'm reared. I was reared by Oprah. We all were. We're the Oprah generation, right? We had her at um, at key moments in our lives. When we were More young. importantly, our parents did. Our parents did. Yes. So a lot that's of Oprah, for a lot of the millennials today. Yeah, I mean, and a lot. That's true for those yes. kids. Certain. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of Oprahism was injected in my life. Partially, and when I say Oprahism, I mean um, the, by just even the guests she had on. Remember, she had on Gary Zukov, Seed of the Soul. Um, you know, she was exploring Joseph Campbell for a brief spell, which is yeah. the idea of following your bliss. I mean, Oprah was one of those people that really helped me think that my work is going to be an essential part of my identity. Because it was through my work that my purpose was going to be revealed. Well, was she right? <laughs> um, I, don't, I don't know if she was right. I think what happened, though, was I I think it's a mistake. I think it's a mistake to make work 
in a capitalist society, which means that some people are going to have access to work and some won't. It's it's a mistake to blend those two things, to make work the way that you um, abstract meaning from life, particularly because of what you just said. Not everyone is going to do work that feels meaningful or feels engaging or all of those things. Mm-hmm. Some of it is just going to be grunt work, right? So to be able to sort of blend those together and say through your work, um, you will uncover meaning and purpose is, uh, I think, ultimately a flawed way of presenting Mm -hmm. the world. And so I think that was a misdirection for a good number of years for me, for certain. I wonder how relevant this is to anyone who's listening. Again, I, I have to say, like, you and I are we have a lot of privilege. I'm going to say we're black people, but we have had a lot of privilege in our lives. We've been in a lot of rooms and gotten a lot. And every day that I wake up, I'm so glad that I get to <laughs> spend at 11 AM, like <laughs> tape a podcast. I don't know. I think it's fantastic. So let's jump into a couple of things to talk about. We don't have any strict topics. We just have some sort of general areas we want to talk about. So the first thing is that last week, the presidential portrait of Barack Obama was uh, unveiled and also the portrait of Michelle Obama and the internet went nuts, both pro and con, which of course was going to happen because the Obamas are very divisive, divisive or divisive. Which one do you say? I say divisive, but I like divisive better. Me too. I think they're both right though. In any way, um, uh, if you haven't seen the pictures, Google them, they're available. What did you think, Trish? Um, initial impression is I really appreciated Obama's first. I had I had more of a problem with Michelle's portrait. Well, let's stick with Obama's. Let's talk about Obama's uh, portrait first, which was um, it was painted by Kinde Wiley. Is that his name? Wiley. Yes, he does these fantastic portraits of black people, usually black men, mm-hmm. in these very rich, very I want to say almost religious overtones to his work, but it's like modern black people in these very uh, classic um, forms and poses. And I think his stuff is gorgeous. And I wish I was rich because I'd have it all up in my house. Uh, It's just so, it's, it's so rich and beautiful and gorgeous. And his portrait um, is Obama seated in a chair with like all this greenery behind him. And Obama looks very serious um, and people are say the chair is very similar to the one like George Washington sat in his portrait or something like that. It's it's just been, I think it's beautiful. So tell me about your thoughts about the Obama portrait. Well, I thought, I mean, I know you want me to stick with Obama. Yeah. But part, part of what was enjoyable about Obama's portrait for me initially was the contrast. And let me just say, Obama's portrait feels very much like Obama. Like I think all... I think all the sentiments that um, arise in you when you think about, or arise in me when I think about Obama is fully reflected in that portrait to me. So, you know, um, with all the flowers, the flowers, the three types of flowers that represent where he's from. There's some Hawaiian flowers, there's some flowers from Kenya, and there's some flowers from Chicago. So that's like, and, and the fact that the flowers are both in the background as well as sometimes protruding into the foreground, mm-hmm. um, reflects on the fact that part of Obama's identity are those three places, right? 
there's a tug of war with those identities for people with Obama. But then there's also this, um, because Kehinde also has a tendency to make these um, Black men in these portraits portraits seem regal. Yes. What's noteworthy about Obama is that he has placed the person who you might think would be the most regal in a fairly comfortable, informal setup. Right? Yeah, because, I know what you mean. You see what I mean? Like, because, for example, he, he's taken like sort of pop culture stars and made them look like generals. And the first time he has somebody who you might even assume that he would have made a general, he actually made him quite um, casual in his pose. You know, it, it's, and, I, and I think there's an informality to the painting that I think is kind of um, um, off for a lot of people because they wanted Obama to be really. Um, reflect the seriousness of the position right and this was mm-hmm. this was time for him to do this thing where maybe he would have put him on like a throne or some element right but but what i think it's is a bit on the nose though <laughs> right but i mean it's almost a little bit too literal right mm-hmm. what's really powerful about this is the fact that he engages obama in a fairly kind of rich luscious yet informal way which i think is is so much of what Obama reflected for a lot of people was mm-hmm. their ability to believe that they could access him, that he was emotionally accessible, even while he was the most powerful person in our country, mm-hmm. which I think for a lot of um, old school African-Americans or black people, I think that is that feels like a bit of a put down. Mm-hmm. Take the person who was the leader of the free world that had ascended in a, in a, in a way and then make him seem informal in his most official portrait. I don't know. There's so much going on there for me that I I, I really liked. I like that. Like I like that um, that messiness. <laughs> I like that contrast. I like that analysis. I think that's really, I think that's really keen. And if you're listening and you're not familiar with Wiley's work, like do a quick Google so you can really understand what Trisha's saying about how he takes just like common, like just common images of black people and makes it look larger than life. Mm-hmm. and so rich and so um godly mm-hmm. and you're right like the idea that obama doesn't come across looking like that I, I think is really special it says a lot about obama it says a lot about the image that he really wanted to put out there yep. um it speaks to a kind of humility that barack obama always exhibited which is in direct contrast to what's happening right now with the president and it, i think there's a lot of nostalgia in the picture just for obama do you know what mm-hmm. i mean it, I think he did a really great job in capturing him. Um, so I I like it. Now, we can talk about Amy Sherald's portrait of Michelle Obama. I know you have thoughts about that. What are they? Well, Amy Sherald is interesting, right? Because when Amy Sherald was introduced, I actually went deep diving into sort of her, um, her history. Mm-hmm. Um, I had read her story about her heart condition in her 40s. I mean, she's, um, and she's pretty much, I think, my age. So I felt a kind of like kinship, just like the story of her life. And, um, and the fact that she was working, um, she was not working as an artist for a good, like, 18 to two years before she even was recognized and, and chosen. You know, she had, she had been sort of derailed in her artistic um, pursuits because of a heart condition. And then she had to take care of, I think, a parent. And so it just, her life felt like a bit um, undone. 
mm-hmm. you know, and then that she was returning um, to her art and she was actually starting to receive some notice. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I think Riley is more, um, maybe more well-established in some way historically, and she's just kind of on the come up. So I sort of went deep diving in her work. And what I've been struck by is, um, is the colorfulness of her portraits, right? The women's faces are always in that grayscale but then they always have this striking um, outfit that just sort of contrasts nicely with the pay, with the with the gray that she uses for the skin tone and the background. Her backgrounds background. are also they're single colors and very yeah, bright and bright. And so, obviously, just think about what I've just said. And then when she was chosen to paint. Michelle, you would think that she is the ideal person because think about Michelle as always in color and bright and mm-hmm. um, and and sort of like iridescent, right? So when you think about the portrait that you imagine that she's going to paint, color is such a huge part of that in my mind. Mm-hmm. So when I first saw it, I'm like, wow, Michelle looks so cool here. She's so, um, and that's the opposite of the the port the the sentiment that Michelle stirs in people or stirred in people, right? Because throughout her eight years in the White House, there was this, what people always said was warmth, right? Warmth mm-hmm. came from her. So to actually look at her portrait and see coolness, I was, I was like, this is the Michelle I wanted to remember. Damn it. What's going on here? Where's that? When you right- say coolness, you don't, you, mean, you don't mean the quality of being hip, right? No, That's I mean, what you, okay. I don't mean the qual. Oh, yeah, I don't mean the traditional cool okay. quality. I mean the traditional cool in the sense of sort of remote, um, distant. Okay. Um, and and even just the colors in the painting, right? It's it's um, it's it's white and then um, lines of fabric, and so it's it's starkly different from some of her past work mm-hmm. because you would have seen Michelle show up in like an orange dress. And that would have just struck me as like, so Michelle, right? So what I thought was so amazing about it, because because I had this reaction, I had to go and explore. I had to read what other people thought of it. And I had to really look at it as um, art, you know, and say, well, I'm not, I'm not a huge um, expert on art. So tell me what is, what you all think she's doing in this portrait. And so what then struck me about it was this idea that in a portrait, you are actually having an interaction with the, with your subject. And um, when you say you, that, you mean the viewer or the artist? The artist. The artist is having an interaction with the subject. It's not like a photograph where you take a photograph and it's really what you want to see, right? You're taking a photograph and it's like a replica of exactly that moment. No, a portrait is actually not supposed to be photographic. It's generally not photographic. And actually, Amy is generally not photographic in her work anyway. Mm-hmm. Like she, um, she's meant to be, she typically takes a more metaphorical approach to her work. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of it is because I didn't know her subjects previously, right? So I didn't even, I didn't re- understand that already because I didn't know her subject. I didn't know that I was judging her subject, but because I feel like I know Michelle, mm-hmm. I'm judging the impression that she's making and has made with a portrait. And my impression of Michelle is warmth and all and all sort of goodness, right? But I think upon watching and looking at the portrait even more, looking at the portrait, I think one of the things she's captured about Michelle is something that was really apparent about Michelle when she first came on the scene that we've successfully forgotten, which is that Michelle was always kind of a little cool 
and a little pull back and a little bit restrained in terms of even her belief in America and her belief in that the possibilities of this. It was they both. They both were. I think that's a function of them being the first black dot dot dot. Exactly. exactly. But but that was not what but, but that was not Barack Obama's initial impression. Barack Obama's initial impression for most people was, oh my God, he's so accessible. And your impression of her initially was that she was inaccessible a little bit, right? And that people then started to put all those negative stereotypes on that inaccessibility, right? Mm-hmm. She's cold, she's a bitch, she's this, da 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 da. That was her first, that was the first impression that started to sort of surround the media representation of Michelle until she sort of like opened herself up more and decided to do this kind of disarming thing that she did. So I just mm-hmm. thought it was really interesting that in the interaction, Amy picked up on this kind of like regal, strong coolness about Michelle that had been there. Remember, she's the one that was the most accomplished. <laughs> like, oh, people forget that. She's the one that mentored Barack Obama. <laughs> she's the one. So I don't know. It's just, um, I, I left the portrait saying, okay, you know what? She captured something about Michelle that we had forgotten. Mm-hmm. And I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. Wow. That, that was a lot. You said a lot. <laughs> you, right. I'm, I'm, that picture, that portrait really moved you. you. You talked uninterrupted for 24 minutes just now. Oh, fuck. Sorry. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> but there, I didn't stop you because I thought it was – okay, first of all, I love that art is so evocative, right? right. I love that you, you look at it and you, you, had, you looked at it and you had this entire – interaction, conversation, and relationship with Michelle Obama through the portrait. Yeah. And I, I love your analysis for it because I think a lot of people are looking at the picture and they're like, I don't like it. It doesn't look like Michelle. It's not exciting, which loses a lot of the nuance that I think you have keyed into, that I think that the artist had keyed into. First of all, if you look at Cheryl's style, this portrait fits directly into the style of her painting. Same thing with Wiley's pictures. Like It's so clearly them but at the same time it is so clearly the subject you know i there's something about michelle's portrait that while the style seems simpler than wiley's i think they both have managed to accomplish the same thing and i, I mean i can just sit here and repeat a lot of things that you think? say but i won't what do you think they both managed to accomplish i think they both managed to reflect exactly who the obamas were when obama was in office I think you really get a sense of that. And looking at other presidential portraits, um, which are a lot more staid and a lot more classical and traditional, which are two words that I hate. Mm-hmm. But when I use them here, I mean it's because they they all look the same. They all came from a single point of view. It's hyper-photorealistic. Their environs are very sort of like administrative. Mm-hmm. Um I mean, did that capture, like, does Eisenhower's photo capture who he is through the use of, of color and, and shading and, you know, background? I, I don't know. I don't know. You look at any presidential portrait and you're like, yeah, that, that's Reagan, all right. But when you, <laughs> you, know, you look at this and you have, you're having an entire experience. Now, we are Black people and Obama means something to us. So I'm curious if... um other people, um, non-black people, who who have who see the portrait 
and even have appreciation of art, I wonder if it will mean the same to them. Who's, who's, I don't know. Cause I, I can't take my, you can't, because I can't take myself out of the equation when I talk about the reaction to the presidential portrait. Cause like Obama was the first black dot, dot, dot. I say dot, dot, dot. Cause he's the first black, lots of things for a lot of people. Um, and so is Michelle. Anyway, all is to say, um, portraits, thumb up, thumbs up. <laughs> uh, I mean, okay. To stop this from, to stop this from just being us being fangirls about this thing. Um, the, uh, let's talk about the criticism of these portraits, which are exactly what you think it's going to be, right? Well, it's, so tell it's me, what not traditional. Not it's, traditional. It's not traditional. Like why it, it looks silly. It looks like an art project, you know, and people just have a strong reaction about Michelle's, which I'm going to be honest with you, doesn't surprise me, right? Because it's a portrait of a black woman. Yeah. And again, everyone's bringing all of their stuff to that, but you know, also they're like, well, I, I just don't like it. Again, I think because Cheryl's picture is not photorealistic. Mm-hmm. I think people have an idea that portraiture is photorealistic, um, which is why portraiture as a, like an art style, from what I understand, has declined steadily for yeah. many, many, many decades now because the idea of photorealism is not sexy to people. It's very hard to put your own style into something that's supposed to look exactly like what your eye is understanding. You know, that's noteworthy. It's really noteworthy because um, I went to a a Caravaggio talk this past weekend. Mm -hmm. They talked about Caravaggio and portraiture. And it was as a result of that conversation that I think I was able to come to the Obama portrait with an understanding of um, what portraiture is, which is that it is not photorealism. And in a world where we can take selfies and we can sort of craft... um, this picture of what we think the world is and what it looks like. Mm -hmm. The idea that a portrait is meant to be an interaction between the artist and the subject, and that it's really about the artist's point of view, Mm -hmm. and not a replication of reality, not simply a photocopy of reality, Mm -hmm. is, um, is, I think, a really challenging thing for a modern audience. And so one of the things that came out of the Caravaggio exhibit is the, is, is the idea that um, back in the day, most of the work that artists were working on were from the religious, were from the Christian story, right? Mm-hmm. So they would always take moments from the Bible. So if you're always talking about a particular Bible story, David and Goliath or um, the death of Jesus, or, it's the same story they're covering, but each artist was able to bring their own point of view to this to this story. Mm-hmm. So it's like these artists are in dialogue with each other about the same damn story. What was noteworthy about Caravaggio it was his choice of who the models were in his story, right? So this idea that he would paint, he would use peasants to represent Jesus. And so mm-hmm. the paintings were dirty, like they would have dirty feet, they would have, and so this idea was that the reason why he chose those subjects was to let you know that these saints or these, or a Jesus figure could be you. Mm -hmm. Right. And so again, what I think what, what going to that um, presentation reminded me was that this is really heavily an artist, an artistic work. It's your job to try to understand what the artist is trying to say to you, which Mm -hmm. is such a challenging thing for, I think a modern audience 
to simply let an artist communicate to you and for you to sort of agree or disagree, but to recognize that the artist has a job to do and has their own point of view. Do you know, we, I don't think we are prepared for that. Everyone's prepared to say, I like it, I love it, I did it. Well, nobody cares about that. The yeah. question is, what is the artist trying to say to you? Did you get it? Did you hear what they were saying? Did you see what they were saying? And what do you think of that? Not what did you want them to do for you? Uh, I wonder uh, what Trump's picture will look like. Actually, never mind. I know exactly what it will look like. Napoleon, it should be Napoleonic for sure. I mean, for sure. I mean, I think all of his pictures just show him glowering and miserable and, you know, very sort of evil looking. So I'm sure. No, no, no. I don't mean it like that. I don't mean like that. I think, I think, I think Obama, I mean, I think Trump's portrait are exactly what you expect him to be, given the reason why I think power would be appealing to him. So I think he would um, he would necessarily have a portrait that is um, that takes all the cues from how you should look powerful. So maybe yeah. he will not be gazing directly at you. He will be maybe in an environment that only suggests power, you know, because I think those are the elements and the touch points for his presidency for him. Absolute power, unquestioning authority. The end game is his. Do you know all of those? Um, terrifying. <laughs> I don't know if it's terrifying as, as much. I, as it's terrifying. I'm terrified. I think it's terrifying. I mean, that but portrait's going to look so terrifying. But that's traditionally what that represents, though. I think we have to really. I think sometimes we have to sort of push back on this idea that it's a new thing for Trump. I mean, he comes from a long lineage of leaders. That's mm. who they have traditionally been. I think what's striking is if you line up all the presidential portraits, is how much the Obamas is such a departure. And that in itself was the departure (laughs) for the country as a whole, realistically. It's completely different. (laughs) Okay, so moving on, I wanted to talk about the, the dual interviews that Quincy Jones gave to GQ and Vulture last week. He spoke to Vulture. uh, It was an article by David Mark. Marquez or Marchese, and then he spoke to GQ uh, in an article by um, God Chris Heath. So, what stood out about these articles is that Uncle Quincy gives exactly zero fucks, and he goes in talking about who is bipolar, uh, who sucks at the music. He shipped some dead people together. Uh, he was just dropping all the bombs, spilling all the tea. You should read the articles, if only <clears throat> to have the reaction that you're going to have, which is like, can you say that? <laughs> <laughs> we can go through the content of these articles, which um, which I don't want to do because I think you should just read it. Mm-hmm. But what I wanted to talk about is I was struck, first of all, by my reaction. Can you say that? <laughs> Which then I, I my follow up question is well why can't you like in some ways this was kind of refreshing for someone in a business that is so constructed to be so off the cuff but then I was like is this just all my own like like reality TV inspired salivating that is making this exciting or is it just like the honesty of like this is an industry with people who are flawed who make mistakes who aren't always great. I just enjoyed that Quincy Jones 
who has zero fucks because he's paid every single due and then some, is can just say on the record, yeah, the Beatles, they're terrible. That's something I've been saying privately for years, but I would never say it in, in mixed company because I understand that people revere the Beatles. Like I don't I, I guess what my this is my question. This is what I want this is what I want to discuss. I, I it's interesting, right? This is what I want to discuss because I'm besides myself. What if like other people started talking like this? Would this be good for the business or bad? Like, what do we as an audience want? Do we enjoy the artifice or do we want genuineness? If that's what Quincy Jones was doing, being genuine, what was your reaction to the articles? I thought what was so great about the articles, um, and actually um, I really, really took a deep dive into the Venture one, I mean the Vulture one. So I understand that one much more intimately. Um, the GQ one, I had a chance to just kind of glance over, and even that is just juicy. First of all, I'm just happy that I can say that the articles were juicy. It's so it's been such a long time that I picked up some an interview with someone and thought this is juicy. I'm learning new details. I think what I appreciate about it is I thought I got his impression of the world, and again, this is what I'm saying. I think in the media environment that we currently exist in, it's not okay for people to give you their impression because somehow or another, your impression equals fact as opposed to just your impression. And so is what Quincy Jones said factual? Not not necessarily. necessarily. Some of it is his opinion. And some of it is, some of it are clearly opinions. And what do we know about opinions? They can be wrong, but at least they give you an impression of what that person thinks, mm-hmm. right? Which is so wonderful because when everyone says exactly the same thing, how could that be possible? Mm-hmm. So, what I appreciate about Quincy was like, it was an opportunity to sort of live in his head for a moment and go, oh, so that's your impression of Michael Jackson. That's the impression of the Beatles. But what I thought was useful about it, too, is that he had reason to have those impressions because he actually interacted with them. So that's noteworthy. That was helpful to me. I was like, really? You think the Beatles didn't understand anything about music? Okay. Because remember, what was the joke I used to make when we were in college before the Beatles came along just banging on pots and pans? Yeah. Because that's what people talk about. The Beatles Beatles created music. (laughs) That's what people believe. The Beatles created it. But I, okay, of course, that, of course that jives with my own perception of the Beatles, and that's not that I'm on the Beatles. But I'm just saying. So I liked it as an approach. I liked it as an approach because I I was startled. And me I mean, too. How often, how often can you be startled nowadays by what somebody says, unless they're saying something completely hateful? I didn't find him saying anything hateful. I actually found him saying things that were somewhat observant, somewhat um, sloppy. But I appreciated it because it wasn't neat and it wasn't tidy. And so I was just constantly like being shocked by his impressions of things. Um, so as as an art form, I thought it was very lively. It was a lively interview, a lively set of interviews. And, a lot- <laughs> and I appreciate it. I have to say, I mean, this is kind of like a uh, like hard right turn. David Marchese or David Marchez, I'm sorry, I don't know how to pronounce that in the vulture piece was so knowledgeable about music. I really appreciate it. Like Quincy Jones was like naming obscure things. And he was like, Oh, you mean this thing? I just, 
That's the mark of a good interviewer. He did his homework going in, but even still, I do not think he anticipated what he got. No, he didn't, because you can tell. And that's actually what was, that's actually what's great about the piece as well, is that as you're reading the piece, you are getting the sense the interview is like, what the fuck is going on here? And I like how like Quincy Jones is like, Bono <laughs> sucks. Cindy Lauper, bitch. You know, Donna Summer, whatever. And then the guy's like, well, what do you think about Bill Cosby? He's like, man, I can't talk about that. <laughs> I know. I was like, okay. talked about everybody else. No, my favorite section is when he talked about who killed JFK. Oh, God. He says he knows, right? Yeah. Oh, he, he says. He says who it was. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to leave that to you all to catch up. On yeah, check that out. Um, <laughs> one of my favorite parts is like when he was dating Ivanka Trump. <laughs> and it says she's beautiful. Wait, wait, this is the best part. She's beautiful. Wrong father, though. <laughs> I mean, look at how much enjoy it. We're happy. okay. We can, but but my central question is like, <laughs> as a as a piece of art, right? As a writing piece, yeah. The article succeeds because look at us. We enjoyed it. We're having a good time with it. We're now talking about it. But as journalism. Does it have a place? Like, is this what we should be? Strike that. Not this what we should. But is this where we should be going in journalism? You had said that it's very hard to startle us anymore, which is why I think reality TV has gotten more and more shocking and more and more out there. Yeah. You know, I, and we could say politics have got has gone the same exact way because you you need people to have an emotional reaction to what you're doing to impel them to buy, to vote, to get out there. You know. Um, as journalism, is this where we need to go? You know, we can talk about politics, whatever, but I'm just like, if we just focus on arts and entertainment, all, all of our movie stars and all of our music stars are so constructed. Still, they're carefully constructed, which I think a lot of people don't appreciate because we feel like we have instant access to them via Twitter and other social media platforms. We forget that all of that is also a construction. I just wonder if like Quincy Jones and other people of his ilk just started spilling tea. Is that good for journalism or bad for it? I mean, it's how it's done. Right. I mean, because um, I'm not saying that the spilling of the tea is, is essential. Right. Cause this is on some level, that's the, that's, that's what comes out of the piece. Like is spilling, um, secrets essential to having um, a deconstructed interview. No, I think what's noteworthy about the interview is that when he gave his opinion, you never felt like it was careful. And so, no, you you never make that mistake. You never make that mistake, and so um, or like that it was carefully calibrated to have an impact. You had the feeling that you were eavesdropping on a conversation that he was having with a confidant. And so you were getting as much of his um, real impression as possible. And that is really difficult to do in this landscape. It's difficult to do because of the artifice you mentioned. And so do I think that we need to go more in this direction? I mean, listen, for me, I think... Anything that allows people to be as authentically themselves as possible within reason, within reason in the sense that they're safe, is a good thing. 
Because what I think it does is that I think it complicates the portrait that we have of ourselves and of the world. Part of what I think um, the artifice has done is create this impression of a person's journey, of art, of life that um, is impossible. It's impossible to match. It's impossible to live up to. And so you know, even his story about working with Ringo Starr and like having two or three hours where this guy could not get the beat right. And he was like, go take a break, Ringo. And some black guy came in, did it in two minutes. <laughs> and Ringo came back, listened to it. was like, what's that? That, that sounds great. He's like, yeah, because it's not you. I mean, even that was, um, you know, that was really, that's, that's really, um, talk about the humanity in that, in that interaction. The mm-hmm. fact that, you know what? The Beatles were not perfect in that moment. I remember the Beatles, he was struggling. He wasn't fully competent. Mm-hmm. He didn't think they were going to get it. Somebody who was more competent got it. I mean, it's a truthful moment. I, I, I think those are great because that tells the real story, right? Mm-hmm. I like that. I think anytime you can get more of those moments into your pieces where you feel like some element of the person um, is available to you and it actually reveals um, failure or um, tragedy or something that you can relate to, I think it's, I think it has value. So as much as I'm laughing about it, I think that's what I was struck by. I was struck by his very humanness and also the humanness of the people he was spilling tea on. I mean, the biggest tea spilled in the vulture piece for me was, you know, the Richard Pryor story. And even that unmasked and revealed Richard Pryor's humanity in a way that I thought was in. Marlon Brando more than Richard Pryor. I think the Marlon Marla Brando already knew those elements about Marlon Brando's life because he lived that out loud. But Richard Pryor having a homosexual encounter is, I mean, this is a person, you know, he's a hero for many people who would probably not think a homosexual encounter is a good thing. So they now have to put those two things together no, in their life. I, you're intruding That's- on what you're intruding on what my non-Black Panther recommendation was going to be, uh, but but anyway, I, I understand what you're saying. I'm understanding like our current conception of Richard Pryor. Um, mm-hmm. It, it might have been disturbed, but at the time, you know, Richard Pryor was would talk on stage about um, gay encounters that he'd have, you know, and whether or not it was a joke or not. I yeah. mean, the amount of specificity in which he talked about it. <laughs> uh, uh, they were talking about in the interview the cha cha cha. And then Quincy Jones, which seems to be his style, just flight of fancy and thought, says, uh, Marlon Brando used to go cha-cha dancing with us. He could dance his ass off. He was one of the most charming motherfuckers you'd ever met. He'd fuck anything. Anything. He'd fuck a mailbox, James Baldwin, Richard Pryor, Marvin Gaye. The interviewer asks, he slept with them? How do you know that? And Quincy Jones goes, come on, man. He didn't give a fuck. You like Brazilian music? Because that's how Quincy Jones is an <laughs> Then they moved on. And this poor man must have been scribbling. Like, I don't know if they write anymore, but I'm like, what the fuck? Um, I, I think I think the issue with me, that the, 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 this is my opinion about this. One, I think journalism is in a sad state of affairs because I think it's too much driven by personality reporting, right? Mm-hmm. Which is, I think, an influence of reality TV. And that is just... Um, writing pieces that don't actually have any uh, factual or meaningful content. It's just really someone spouting off or 
trying to encourage other people to respond to them. So mm-hmm. then the uh, story will continue. The music business is basically that, right? Katy Perry comes out with a new album. So now we have to hear about she has a diss track against someone else who then is going to have a diss track against her. And now that way they can go back and forth and they stay in the news. I, I find that exhausting because I'm a slightly older person, perhaps. I guess young people live for it. But I don't know. I, on some level, although I was titillated by this article, I don't think Quincy Jones does him any favors. Personally and professionally, for sure. But that's for him to deal with, right? I think he name checks a lot of people. He says a lot of things that people are going to want to hold him accountable for. Um, but beyond that, you appreciate this because you feel it tells us something about Quincy Jones. Very much so. Yeah, can't, very much so. Can't disagree. Um, but I have to say, and maybe this is an unfair comparison, I got a whiff of like interviews that people would do with Nina Simone, who was struggling with bipolar illness at the time. Those interviews were very salacious. You know, she talked about carrying guns and shooting music producers and whatnot. And they did the interviews because they knew that Nina Simone would give them what they wanted, which was like this very dishy, very like, oh my God, kind of interview. And I just, again, I know Quincy doesn't appear to have any fucks to give, but I was kind of like, did you want all this out there like that? I don't know. I don't want to rob him of his agency, but I just, I don't know. It left me feeling a particular way about the glee in publishing this. I mean, they must have known how this was going to, how those people were going to react to seeing all this delicious dish. You know what's so interesting about this is Mm. that for you, it's about what are you reckoning with? Because I think, I think it's because we understand that the media environment is um, driven by clicks and, and that the dishier you can make something, the clickier it gets, right? The more, um, the more, the further it will go. But I think for me, part of what, I mean, and this is a challenge, right? This is a challenge because clicky clickbait is um is maybe sometimes common denominator the lowest common denominator but at the mm-hmm. same time oh my god i'm about to say something that rupert murdoch did oh this is atrocious blocked no i mean one of the reasons why certain things became clickbait was because there was so much falseness in presentation and people wanted to feel like they were getting things unmasked and but i but but part of that challenge is that the speed at which the unmasking happens mm-hmm. and then it just devolves into trash right and so part of i get that i part of part of your hesitancy i completely understand is because it's boundaryless and boundaries are important. You know? Um, I think so. I mean, I think, yes, I I 100% agree. Like if we, if we have a media environment where everyone is just speaking their mind and saying, you know, telling just secrets without context, it makes so much noise that none of these articles actually tell us anything anymore. It's just all tabloid nonsense. Yeah, and if that's where we're going, I, there, I, I mean, and maybe I'm over showing my hand here, but there's no value to tabloid nonsense. 
Quincy Jones is a genius. He's uh, He has loomed large over the music industry for well over the past five, six decades. He has a lot to tell us about music. And he does tell us a lot about music in that article. So Some of the things that he discussed, I was like, wow, that's really deep. But the rest of it, um, I don't know. I worry that that's the part that we initially started talking about, is about all the dishiness. When you actually talk about some of the, the real comments he makes about music, music business, the music industry, and music as art. Um, and maybe I'm just being an old fart, but I don't want to lose that stuff when it comes to reporting and, and journalism. I think it's it's too important to lose. Like, I don't want everything to be the real housewives of. Fair point. So that's my general frustration. If you have not read the Quincy Jones articles, read them because, look, make no mistake. It's we'll dishy as fuck. We'll link to both of them. Yeah, we'll link to them. And just like the last note, when you texted the article to me, Trisha, I was like, what's this? Because like usually it's like, I'm going to save these articles for the train. I was in my kitchen. So I read like the first couple of lines. And honey, I stood in my kitchen for the next 20 minutes, just scrolling with like a half cracked egg in my hand. I was like, holy shit. What is all of this? It's like he lost his mind. Okay. I want to move on to the last thing before we move on to recommendations. So in Florida, there was a school shooting on Thursday. And... I am struck by, again, my entire Facebook feed has been filled up with people angry about this, both my liberal friends and my conservative friends. Yes, I have like four of those. Everyone is upset about this. But I mean, are you at all confused about what's going to happen next, which is exactly nothing? I And I tend to be very black and white when it comes about these sorts of things. But can we just finally admit to ourselves that children are going to die? And that's what we're kind of all signing up for. At the very least, we elect people who are electing for our children to die. I I wanted something different to happen after Parkland, Florida. But then I was frustrated that I wanted something different to happen because why would anything different happen? And it kind of sucks. And I feel like, and I know I say this about everything, it's just time for revolution. Like just waiting for Congress to do it when Marco Rubio is getting paid and the rest of them getting paid every second by the NRA, it's just not going to do it. It feels a little bit like a dystopian science fiction story where it's like the purge or something where in, in to get like all the capitalist greatness that we get, like occasionally some kids are going to have to die and we're going to like, okay with that, like a very cabin in the woods kind of thing. I'm not okay with it. I, I've never been okay with it. And I just, I, it stuns me that as a nation of 300 million, that we're okay with that on like the grand scale. I miss the whole new cycle of Parkland because I just wasn't on Twitter and that's really the only place I get my news. Well, I'll tell you this much. The details are exactly the same yeah. as the details as they always are. Exactly yeah. the same. I miss the live happening of it because I think um, quite a number of the students um, were live tweeting it as it happened. And, you know, so, um, so obviously what I chose to do was I, I willfully chose not to go on Twitter. So I chose not to um, expose myself to this one for 
a couple of reasons. First of all, um, it's important for me not to sort of seat myself in this because I do travel quite a bit on public transportation. And so for a lot of people, they're constant, this is like, this is the moment when they think about their safety, but I think about my safety all the time because I'm on public transportation. And that means that I had, I can be shot down at any moment in time by anyone on public transportation mm-hmm. because I'm not in full control. People who are in their car, they feel a sense of safety because you know, you're isolated in some ways. You're an isolated vehicle taking you to and fro, but I'm mm-hmm. always around people. So I'm mm-hmm. always aware of my vulnerability in that, in that sense. So I don't want to be hyper aware of it. Two, this used to happen a lot. Which part? Is the, the shooting and the killing. The difference mm-hmm. yes, is that, it still does. No, but what I'm saying is it used to happen a lot in the 80s when I was younger, but they were killing people that look like me. I think people name check Connecticut as like a turning point, but I have to, and I think the reason why they name check that is on a, such a racialized level that um, I think we need to ask ourselves about that. But I remember my the compelling image from my childhood was hearing about inner city schools with black and brown people being savaged by gun violence, drive-by shooting all the time. That was my impression when I was younger, was that my life didn't matter as a young person, as a young person of color, right? And I think nobody understood the root of that, right? We all assumed that it was racialized, right? So it was like, okay, Obviously, black and brown people's lives don't matter. But what starts with us has expanded to everywhere now. Because what's striking to most people with these gun violent episodes is that now it's touching everybody and nothing is changing. And so what you so I'm not I'm not as much enraged by it because our lives never mattered. But I think what's interesting is that people are now realizing that maybe white lives don't matter either. White children's lives don't matter. And what does that, and now we have to do that next step, which is what you're asking. We now have to make that next massive leap that our human lives don't matter in the larger framing of things. Because I knew this in the 80s as a black and brown child that my life didn't matter. Because what was the what was the compromise for us? Uh, metal detectors, right? That was the compromise yeah. to us was metal detectors in all of our surroundings, mm-hmm. gates on on places that were supposed to be fun, gates and bars on parks. Mm-hmm. I think that's where we're going to go next because that was the compromise made for us, right? What would what's going to be different? I assume now what we're going to do is we're going to craft a space where schools and buildings are just constantly surveilled. I would look at the way that we are treating opioid addiction now that drugs have touched white communities in the past 20 years. Um, I'm sorry, the past 30 years um, versus the crack epidemics of the 80s. There are a couple of minor differences between the two, but the major difference is that opioid addiction affects white people as well as black people, as opposed to crack, which was seen as an inner city phenomenon. If we use that as a model, then 
you will want to believe that much in the way that Trump has declared opioid opioid addiction as a national emergency, you would you'd want to believe that now that like the blondest and the blue eyed of kids are being killed, that there'd be a similar reaction from our government, but there isn't. And I find that really striking. I don't, you know why? Because what's different, I mean, what's interesting about shootings, well, because when shootings were happening, it was gang violence. That was that was the rationale for it when mm-hmm. it was happening in our communities. These were criminals, they need to be locked up. And so what you ended up with was a kind of narrative around increased policing. Of, of, of spaces that were intimate spaces for us or supposedly safe spaces, schools, churches, all those places become like um, an arena to be policed, right? Mm-hmm. So if we're going to follow your narrative around the opioid addiction, what happened was um, the perception was that everyone was a victim with the opioid crisis now. Oh, poor, this per- poor person's gotten addicted to this, da da da, da. What you're seeing now is that the aggressor is the victim because the way they've talked about this, um, the person who shot up those kids, he's as much a victim as the kids. That's the language we're using. And so what we we have is we're at the mercy of, uh, we're victimized by a victim. And what is he a victim of? He's a victim of... um, you know, um, poor mental health, um, a savage home life. And so actually, I think we're going to, I think we're going to avoid actually dealing with this on a systemic level and we're going to continue to personalize it. But what we're going to do is we're going to personalize it in this way, in the fact that these are inappropriate people. These are um, damaged people, which still keeps it on an individual level takes it far away from community and far away from policy. Mm. Do you see what I mean? So it's kinder, but it's still inaction, right? The last time it happened, the perpetrators were cruel, horrific, but needed to be rounded up and put in prison. Mm. This time around, it's the, the perpetrator is a victim of cruel, the cruelty of life. And that, um, and that necessitates what? Maybe um, not a criminalization, but an actual um, victimization methodology, which means that now we might have to seek out these lone kids who seem to be lost and we might have to do something to them. Maybe, wow. maybe mental institutions. I, have to I, mean, say that, mm-hmm. I mean, that might be where you end up, which is that it's still individual, right? Yeah, I've seen a couple of people are posting, like in a well-meaning sort of way, Mm-hmm. about like oh the radical way to stop gun violence and then you click through and it's like if you see disengaged kids talk to them yep. include them and i was like the onus when it comes to something like assault weapons the onus should not be on the community yeah to take care of that you know other people someone else <clears throat> one of my um right-leaning friends had published like this is a story about a teacher who jumped in front of some bullets to protect some students. And they're like, share his picture, tell his story, make him more famous than the shooter. And I was like, this man died a hero, but no, he should not be more famous than the shooter. Like we are not going to hold up stories who a people who attempt to mitigate disaster when the disaster might have been prevented in the first place. 
Exactly. But that's the solution, right? But, but see, that is a solution about that's entirely person-centered. Let us make you the hero. What is the next step that people are suggesting? Let's make te- let's arm teachers so that they can become heroic. We're not dealing with systems issues. And so what I'm suggesting is that we're never going to deal with systems issues. We didn't deal with it when it was happening in inner cities, and we're not going to deal with it when it when it has moved to the suburbs. We're not going to unpack the systemic nature of what's happening. We're not going to ask those bigger picture questions. And I mean, I, I think what's also noteworthy right now is that is the NRA um, narrative, because the NRA narrative didn't exist when it was happening in inner cities. Oh no! We, of course not. Of course not. The NRA is okay. Oh my God! NRA is not about gun ownership, right? But, <laughs> it's not about gun ownership for all Americans. But what I'm saying is that part's clear. But what I'm saying is the NRA narrative is is, is similarly a distractor, a distraction. But it works when the, when the um, the victims are white. It really does because then it actually ends up being a conversation about rights and um, money and all of these kinds of things. When it's really at the base. We need to have this conversation about quality of life. It's it was quality of life when it was in the inner city, and it is quality of life now. Mm-hmm. But both tactics distract us from asking this underlying question, which is how much value do we place on human life? Mm-hmm. In every aspect of American life, we we say not much. I mean, I mean unless you are a, a, unless you are a collection of cells in a woman's uterus, then it's well, I all mean, about. Besides <laughs> that, I mean, but even that is a distraction because we also know that that doesn't matter when the child is born. Is born. So I'm just like, I just think that I, I just think all of it is. We have to basically recognize that we have a cultural problem. We have a cultural problem that's, that places human life at the very bottom. And I think for many years, it was okay when that human life was black, brown, woman. But I think what people are starting to recognize is that it's really all human life. Because when you're having a battle around healthcare, which is essentially life, mm-hmm. that tells you really all you need to know. The guns piece is just a symptom of a larger issue which is that we have not figured out a way to value human life. We have a mechanistic world, mechanistic view of humans, which is they only mean things in so much as they have the capacity to what earn money, finish a job, all of you. Know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I just, you know, I, and I don't know how we move away from that conceptualization. I just don't know. I don't know how that is. Well, I mean, until we talk about this again, right? So (laughs) I want to wrap. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. Wrap this up and be like, okay, well, but there's just no hopeful note here. Well, I mean, there's there's no hopeful note. There are always turning points. There are always. What is going to turn it? Like, what is going to turn it? I don't know. You know, I I gave up after Sandy Hook because I was like, you know. Once those dead bodies are white and five years old and no one cares, we're done. Like there's nowhere else to go. I don't know what the turning point's going to be. You know, like I, I get dark. Like, I mean, it ha- doesn't touch the people it needs to touch. 
right? It touches the common people. Like, I don't know what it's going to take. I don't think it has anything to do with touching people. I really don't. I think when it becomes untenable is when that happens, is when change happens. And untenable doesn't necessarily mean it has to touch a person. Untenable just means it becomes impractical. It becomes, um, because that's also, think about the U.S. The U.S. is very practically based, right? That's the thing, right? When it becomes impractical, right now, the marketplace for dealing with gun violence is opening. They're, they want to they wanna train. They want to have like a certain type of backpack. They want to do all these. So they're actually, there's a commodification of this space right now that's going to happen. Um, so I don't, I don't know. So capitalism, about. capitalism will kill yeah, us I mean, and us at the same time. Exactly. You know, that's one, I mean, that's one of the things. I mean, we look at other countries and they reached, a, they had one mass shooting and they were done. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the example, right? The example is like Australia or whatever. And they're like, no, mm-hmm. not prepared to do this. But again, they have a conception of life that's wholly different than our conception of our own lives mm-hmm. here in the United States. And until something happens that like rips that conception up a little bit, mm-hmm. I just I just imagine that we'll keep doing what we're doing, which is we're going to have thoughts and prayers and and just say this is the price you pay for democracy at least the way we're conceiving of democracy well there it is all right okay so now we have media recommendations which is something that you've seen heard read or experienced that you think other people should see hear read or experience trisha what is yours black panther wait what (laughs) hello hello how dare you (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Trisha, what um, aspect of the Black Panther movie will you recommend to listeners? <laughs> You're a mess. <laughs> you know, and I want to say, like, just let's I just mean, recommend it. Because I think. Because I was going to recommend something entirely different. No, you weren't. <laughs> I, I had, no, I had a backup one, but let's just be honest about what's going on here. Sure. <laughs> I want to just, I just want us to recommend it. I, there's actually like entire things I want to talk to about the movie, but it's like a whole other podcast, but like, um, no, feel free to recommend whatever Black Panther inspired thing media that you want to talk about this week. (laughs) Well, I'll recommend seeing it multiple times. Uh, it came out, what is it? It came out on Thursday and I've already seen it four times. One time. One time in secret, because my sister's like, where'd you go? And I was like, shoe shopping. Because uh, <laughs> I totally didn't want her to know that I went to sign a bunch of times. <laughs> thank God. Thank God. I'm going to name check. A fabulous person gave me um, Fandango, a Fandango um, gift card, which was just the right amount to see Black Panther twice. <laughs> so um, I've seen it four times. I'd been staying with a friend who was visiting in town and I crashed at her hotel and I got up and I looked at my um, phone and I was like, oh, I think I might want to see Black Panther. Oh, I wonder what. And it was like, there's a Black Panther showing at 9.45. It was 9.27 and I... A.M.? Yes. I was like, what? Watch this hour. Because, you know, I like a full theater. So I looked at, I went in and I was trying to purchase tickets and I was like, whoa, 9.45 a.m. It's sold out. It's practically sold out. It had like, it. it had six seats available. So I was like, okay, this is going to be a full 
theater, but it was also in a fairly like white neighborhood. So I was like, Ooh, what's Black Panther like in a black, in a white neighborhood? So, um, different experience. Last night I saw it with a whole, um, about 133 people, um, of black people. Mm-hmm. That was different. I still think the best experience was the very first night I saw it opening night. Yeah. It was really, it was maybe like, um, I don't know, 30, mm, I'd say 60, 40 crowd. Mm-hmm. 60% percent white. Black. No, 60% white, 40% black. But that theater is, um, it was a massive theater with the dome. I don't usually see a lot of black people there, but there was so much excitement because by then no one had seen it. Right now I can tell people who have seen it already because they're responding in a certain way. But that one, no one had seen it in the room or at least people who had seen it, but it was like industry people maybe. So it was like all brand new. It was the first screening in the big dome of it. And there were cost people were dressed to the nines. People were taking pictures of themselves. It was like a massive ride. Honey, and it's great. Let me tell you. So I've, I've only seen it once. So, oh, so sorry. Sorry, everyone. But my rec- my media recommendation is to also see it multiple times. Uh, <laughs> I cannot tell you. First of all, I went to the theater. I went with about 21 or 22 other black people. And uh, people were dressed in like, dressed to the nines, like you said. Like there was a lot of African prints. People had their hair. There was face makeup involved. It was the, not just us, but the theater. It was so... Great. And when that movie started, oh my God. Oh my God. Everybody fucking loved that movie so much. It was so good. Um, there there is so much I want to say. I think it the movie raises so many questions and so many great things to talk about. And maybe we can do that next time. Uh I just want to highlight that as as far as the Marvel universe goes, this is probably the strongest movie. Um, right up there with Captain America's Winter Soldier, which I think this might actually be better. Now I'm going to have to watch both of them again. Uh, Winter Soldier is probably like my favorite Marvel movie, but this is just one better because of the creativity involved in every aspect of what you're seeing on that screen just is so well thought out. And you can just kind of sense that like this entire, um, not pre-colonial, but uncolonized black world that is created in Wakanda it was just like incredible. You know, I will say <clears throat> the only criticism that I see people, I see I, the one criticism I saw of this movie, not so much of like its meanings and themes, which is like a whole thing. But the one criticism of the movie I saw was that there wasn't enough action scenes. Yeah. And that's the one thing that I honestly believe. Like my one criticism of this movie is that it needed to be 20 minutes longer. Like I <laughs> It's true. I am. That's like that's actually my only critique of it in that way. In mm-hmm. terms of actual content of the movie, we can talk about like subject matter and all those kinds of themes, obviously. Mm-hmm. But definitely as a movie or as an action movie, I could have done with one or two more action sequences spliced throughout. Yes, the storytelling. I, I definitely needed that. one more, at least yeah. one more, and one more with Black Panther kicking ass in like a really, really clean, interesting way. You know, like similar to the scene in Korea, but like I wanted him to have a win somewhere where I could see the full Black Panther yes. over. Or similar That's- to his, his scene in Avengers 2, where yes, he was great in that. Yeah. I, I couldn't lose more. His, 
his human story. His human story was um, was definitely for at the forefront, which mm-hmm. is why for me this movie is up there with the first Iron Man movie for me because I really because I think it um, it's a throwback to the initial start of that universe because I thought Iron Man and I think Captain America and I think this these three those three are my favorites because there's content in all three of them. There's subject mm-hmm. matter there's character development, there's like story building. The rest of the movies um, I find to be really loud and kind of obnoxious with action. It's like mm. too much action. This time around, um, it was like, it was, there was real strength in character, real strength in who the people were. I mean, for me, um, that's what I really appreciated about this movie as kind of a Marvel movie. Separate from all the greatness of the movie for like black people and all that kind of stuff, just as a movie within the Marvel universe, it was a little bit of a throwback to Iron Man and Captain America, where there's like a story with a plot. I feel like those three movies, though, Iron Man, Captain America, Black Panther, are tackling like very large themes. Yes. Uh, Like Iron Man is tackling, you know, that came out now 10 years ago. 2008 like what the iraq war was still like a thing and Mm -hmm. to to talk about war and war profiteering and Mm -hmm. arms dealers and stuff like that's a big topic captain america winter soldier when spoiler alert when shield gets destroyed and there's this idea of sowing enough misfortune and mistrust so that people want to like slavishly devote themselves to like ideas of like to to a, a, a surveillance state at the time when that movie came out, like I know it's a superhero movie, but that's actually a very big idea. Same thing with Black Panther, like this tension between like how African diasporic people should be treated or what they should do is a really, it's a running theme in the movie, mm-hmm. but this is a superhero movie, right? So mm-hmm. I think those three movies that you mentioned, I think are successful and fantastic because it's able to take the theme, treat it with some respect. Like it's not dumbed down. But mm-hmm. it's given like a superhero spin. Like some of the best comic books are written like this. Um, I can't talk about this movie enough. I can't. I have, I have a question for you because I'm not a big comic book reader. But I read um, I read a interesting. I think I read a review of this on um, AV Club. Yeah, and they talked about it as um, what was also really appealing about it for them. They said was it was the most comic book like movie they had seen in a really long time. In the sense that there were just like some wacky moments, but also it was really close a closed universe. Did you think? Did you find that to be the case? I did. I think this was definitely the most graphic novel mm-hmm. of the Marvel movies. In that, that might like, be what they mean as the, well. There was, you know, especially once near the end of Phase One with the Marvel movies, the interconnections were just sort of taken for granted. Especially mm-hmm. when you watch Thor three, mm-hmm. like. Hulk is just casually in there and like there's all these the grandmaster, all these elements from the other movies are just casually in there. Like, Oh, you know what's going on. I think black Panther really, it kind of stood on its own mm-hmm. as far as it had a story to tell that had a beginning, middle and end. And even the post credit scene, which pulls in characters from the other movie, there was a moment where I was like, Oh, right. <laughs> you know, like, Oh yes, of course, because you're going to be infinity war. And you know, we have to prep all of that. Um, so yeah, I would say this is the most graphic novel. It got like a, like it got a really good treatment. I'm just trying to think of another movie that might have been like that. Doctor Strange, probably with its own story. Mm-hmm. Um, Ant Man, not so much because it part of that plot had a direct assault on the Avengers base. But uh, yeah, 
I, okay. We have to wrap this up only because we could just keep talking about this and we will. So we're just going to hold off. We're going to hold off until we, I think we should hold off because I, I want everyone to see the movie at least twice. Yes. And then join us in two weeks when we will break down those themes and really pit them against each other. Plus we need to give all the people on every side time to write their think pieces. So we have something to disagree with. <laughs> uh, how many more times are you going to see it tonight? You think? Not tonight, but I think I have a tomorrow date on Tuesday. Okay. My thing about movies when I see a movie multiple times is I like to create new experiences for me to see it. So I either want to see it with somebody who hasn't seen it. I either want to see it with a totally different demographic. I want to see it in a different neighborhood. Like I need to, sh- I need to break things up. So I think on Tuesday, I'm going to go see it with two friends who have not seen it. All right. But it, it will it will have been a couple days. So things will have settled down and I will be um, missing Wakanda and want to visit. And so. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, as we wrap this up, I just want to say Girls Trip, Black Panther, that Star Wars film. Stop saying you can't put Black people in movies because every time you do, that shit sells out. I just want to put that out there. It's not an accident. It's not a mistake. Uh, I want to talk about that next time, too. There's, this movie opens up so much. But you know what? We have gone on or long enough so we have to wrap this up unfortunately i'm gonna see black panther at least one more time um before i talk to you non-podcast wise but just at least one more time everyone if you haven't seen it see it see it now see it and come join us and tell us your impressions so yeah go out there see it go to our facebook page tell us on a scale of one to ten how much you like the movie but only use numbers from 14 and up that's that's how that's going. I'm gonna let you all know straight up. Uh, I think we might have another. We might want to try to invite a third person on who's um, who who hates it, just so that we don't just no, we're not gonna have that. gush for an hour. No, <laughs> we can break down a movie without having to gush. Okay, so uh, we're gonna this up. I will talk to you later. Wakanda forever. Wakanda forever. And you know, Have fun seeing it again. Bye. I will. Uh, I'm on my way. Bye.